Hey there, SLP. You are listening to this podcast, so I know that you love to listen to podcasts. And if that is the case, then I know that you are going to love my secret private podcast, Secondary Secrets for SLPs. It's six short episodes that will have you walking away feeling refreshed and inspired and ready to take on those challenging secondary speech students. So if you work with grades four through 12 and are in a planning rut or wanting some fresh new ideas to keep your students motivated, make sure you head to speechtimefun.com slash secondary secrets. You are not going to find this podcast in your iTunes podcast search browser. You can only get access by going to that link. So head to it now. It is six short episodes that you can listen to it in under an hour, like totally Netflix binge-worthy. I made this just for you, and I know you are going to love it. SLPs have been telling me already that it has changed their way for working with their older speech students. So head on over, again, to speechtimefund.com slash secondarysecrets, or use the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Now let's head on to this week's episode of SLP Coffee Talk. You are listening to SLP Coffee Talk. I am your host, Hallie Sherman, and I am a licensed speech-language pathologist who is in the trenches working full-time in a public school in New York. I am the author of the blog and Teachers Pay Teachers store, Speech Time Fun, where I love helping other SLPs conquer the overwhelm and get back hours spent on prepping activities. I am here to help you be the best SLP you can be and have fun while doing it. Just like your morning cup of coffee, this podcast is just what you need to start the day or week. Let's jump into today's Coffee Talk. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. Today, I have someone from the other side of the world who is already on the next day. She's in the future. Atina Levy, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. This is so fun. Like We're recording this episode on a Thursday in June, and she's like, hi, I'm in the future. I'm in Friday already. I'm like, that is so wild. So let everyone know, they can't figure out from your accent, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your SLP journey. Sure thing. So I am a speechy. I kind of tend to go by speech therapist. It's more of a preference because I prefer the word therapy to pathologist uh, or therapist rather. And I am an autistic ADHDer. Like many other women, I'm quite recently identified. So it's not even been a year since formal diagnosis. It's been probably two to three years since I started really going why do I really understand these autistic ADHD kids that I work with? Uh, okay, now I have a bit of uh, clarity about why that is. So I've been working as a speech since 2012, so 11 years if the maths hold that. And my whole career I've worked with neurodivergent kids, didn't have the term neurodivergent back then, and here we are. Uh, you know, I do a lot of professional education. I do a lot of parent education. I'm all about stepping out and kind of, yeah, I talk a lot about changing the world around the kid rather than changing children directly. And that's kind of where I've found my space these days. And I also encourage therapists to think broader than just changing the child's skills. It's a big part of how I teach. It's amazing. What was your aha moment 
in whether it was maybe your own diagnoses or even realizing that maybe some of the practices you were doing maybe initially were not aligned with what you believe in? So, yeah, many versions of aha moments. It's a great phrase, actually. Um, in terms of looking at my own practices, I think that's been something that has been very confronting. Probably it's been, I'd say the last four, three or four years since I've really started looking at my own practices, especially around supporting autistic kids and holding up the mirror to myself and trying to work out, well, uh, is this affirming or is this trying to ask a child to change to fit the world, to be a little bit more palatable to the world, just like the world asked me to do my whole life, which is really tricky. So, you know, we've Probably all have done a lot of practices in the past where we have encouraged masking. So, you know, kind of asking kids to act different than their real true self. And it feels pretty rough when you kind of go, the things I've said before, the things I've taught or the goals I've had before, that I am very open about that process because I think it helps other clinicians to better reflect on their own practices and recognize you don't just change overnight or you don't just turn your back and say, well, I've always done it this way, so I'm going to just keep doing it this way. Yeah, like it's just such an important process to reflect and change and it's I find it very exciting actually. And it's also lovely to acknowledge that there's a lot that I always did that was quite aerodiversity affirming, again, before we had that terminology. And things like following a child's lead and, you know, we didn't always do that, but I certainly did that with most kids and especially those early language kids or just, you know, little kids. And then I developed a way of working with kids that was following their lead, even when they're 10 years old and want to write about the football or whatever that was. So, you know, these things, you know, some of them came naturally and some of them we've had to probably were all in the process of changing and shifting practice. So it's, it's a journey mm-hmm. that probably, so while there might be little aha moments along the way, it's not been like a big switch. There's, there's a journey there. And I find that. SLPs are now becoming more aware and more, it's more in front of us, especially those on social media attending conferences. I find the other professionals and the parents maybe are not fully there yet. What advice would you give to that? It's very interesting one. And I'm also very curious about the perception of kind of how the movement of neurodiversity affirming practice is swinging in the US compared to in Australia. I have a lot more of a sense of where we're at here. And actually, my impression is that speeches are really far along the journey on the whole, which is very encouraging. I It excites me no end. I hope that that's the case. You know, and I'll have the pleasure of speaking at your speech retreat in July. And that's something that really excites me. So obviously, it's something that your speeches in the US are looking for. So thumbs up to that one. How we deal with it when parents are not aligned or, you know, you go into a school or you're working in a school and teachers are still teaching behavioral practices and asking for eye contact and invalidating communication unless it's speech. The first thing I suggest is to just kind of breathe, breathe through it and go, okay, this could feel tricky. This could feel confronting. This might make me feel really upset. Um, you know, to deal with that situation. So regulating ourselves before jumping into these conversations with the other professionals or parents, very important. And I think like following a child's lead and getting a relationship with a child and building that over time, we have to do that with the grown-ups too. And so if we think we're going to have a 
you know, really lovely, positive, therapeutic relationship with everyone in this child's life, it has to build over time. It will be a relationship building process. So sometimes going slowly is good, you know, get to know the person, whether it's a parent, teacher or so on, find out what their beliefs are and find out what their values are and what their barriers are to being along the same path of affirming beliefs as you. So sort of getting curious there. And then, you know, we meet them where they're at to some degree, but we have an advocacy role. You know, we need to support our kids. We need to support our neurodivergent kids in the way that we know is best. So there's a point where we might have to turn around and say to a parent, for example, that school may not be the best setting for your child. I don't jump to that quickly, let me say. That childcare centre may not be the best setting. We've tried. They are not receptive. They're not open to learning. This is the minority of cases. It's certainly not, uh, you know, we don't escape these tricky situations too easily, but sometimes we do have to walk away. And in some cases, depending on the service where speeches are working, sometimes it's appropriate to say, we're not the right service for you, or I'm not able to provide the support that you're after. If you've already tried all that education for the family and, you know, supporting them to understand your approach, where it's come from, sometimes walking away is necessary and hard. Wow. So it's a, that's such great advice. And that can be hard, really hard, especially in a school and like, might be the only provider. So I kind of love we're out of choice. Exactly. Exactly. Can you share more about like neurodiversity affirming practices when it comes to assessments? Something I think about a lot. I'm actually working on something, brewing something in the background at the moment to go a lot deeper into this, into the training around this. So I was listening to a podcast recently and I'm not going to name where it was or who it was, but a very prominent speech therapist who is very closely linked to one of the big assessment companies was recently asked about how to use the self five in a neurodiversity affirming way. Um, and it was very confronting to me. Uh, I don't think she understood what that meant at all. Um, and, and she just talked about how autistic kids just need to be rated on their social skills and the pragmatic profile is quite appropriate. And it's quite fine because it helps them in their life. Was it something I'm paraphrasing wildly? But the vibe was that somebody from within that world of standardized formal assessment had no read on the fact that let's just focus in on the pragmatics profile checklists, for example, that that is quite invalid when we're talking about autistic or neurodivergent social skills. I'm using inverted commas for those who can't speak. And one of the key things that we know about neurodiversity affirming practice and one of the big principles is the idea that neurodiversity is or neurodivergence is about being different, but not wrong and not broken and not incorrect. And there's something I would encourage your listeners to look up or research a little bit more about around the double empathy problem, if that is not familiar to them. In a nutshell, the double empathy problem says that autistic individuals are not the ones with bad social skills and not the ones at fault for when there's breakdown or, you know, sort of challenges in social interactions between neurodivergent people or between autistic people and holistic people, not autistic people. Traditionally, we've kind of said, oh, well, it's the autistic people that need to change and to kind of fit in with us and communicate like us and follow these conversation rules, which by the way, are pretty arbitrary and change all the time. 
So the double empathy problem is an idea coined by an autistic researcher, Dr. Damien Milton. And he basically says there's different ways of being social and there's different ways of interacting and there's different ways of considering other people and uh, having empathy towards other people. And they are different, underline, underline different, wrong. So when we look at these standardized assessments, and again, I'm just focusing here on the corner of pragmatics, for example, or these formalized checklists, a lot of them have very faulty premises that they're built on. They reflect what we're looking for in terms of neurotypical social skills, that they don't reflect mm, the reality, the internal reality of an autistic person. They don't reflect the fact that neurodivergent interaction and communication skills can look very different from neurotypical social skills. So, I mean, even the term social skills is a bit of a dirty word these days, which is really interesting. Social communication skills. Okay, so zooming out a little bit, I think in terms of assessment, qualitative assessment that looks at people's actual experience, so a child's experience and their caregiver's experience, but always centering the child wherever possible, that's most important and that's going to get us so, so far. And, you know, really... I mean, our assessments often fall into two categories. Sometimes we can use them for one purpose, but generally it's for qualifying for certain funding or services and it's for setting goals usually. And there might be different reasons and different boundaries, like wherever we are, it's often quite different. So there's, you know, probably rules in the US and various things that you need to do and standardized assessments that have to be ticked off for various qualifications for services and that's really frustrating because <laughs> they're just not very valid. And I always sometimes yeah. warn parents, like, I'm reporting these scores just to give your child a service. Like, ignore the scores. Look at, like, my report instead of the, the numbers. And I think that's the best way of, like, having that rapport with the parent to say, like... And it's still such a shame that we have a lot of systems in place where we still need to do these often irrelevant, standardized, formal assessments that are not for any benefit for the child. And even just thinking about, if you think, okay, well, this child is going to flunk the test because, and, and that's good because that's going to qualify them for services and I can put severe on their report. How does that feel for the child sitting there through an assessment repeatedly? And I know we don't give direct feedback saying, well, that was wrong, <laughs> but they get a vibe. You know, kids know, we all know when we're doing something that is too hard for us. Like, how would that feel if somebody was asking any of us to do, I don't know, an engineering assessment? I'm just made up engineering. I don't know how you are at engineering, but I'm very bad. I no. And ask me to like build something, like I would not like a direction. Right. I'd fail that. Like set, set a timer on that even more. You lost me. Give me a maths test. Take away my phone. Like you know all of that. So just imagine any scenario where you are just way in over your head, and you're just told, well. We just have to do this. You just have to sit here and do this. And I'm going to keep asking you hard questions and you're going to keep not knowing the answer and they're going to keep being hard. And yeah, okay, every now and then you might get one or two. That is soul destroying. That's really, really too much for a kid. It is so unfair for a kid who probably already has too many experiences in life of not having success and just being told that they're wrong or they're not doing things right or they're not good enough. Their knowledge is not good enough. Their skills are not good enough. So just simply the act of putting a child through an assessment that is not a match for what they really need or what's going to actually reveal their needs is 
really, really hard. So I guess what I encourage people to do there is only use assessments if you absolutely have to, not because you think you have to or not because it's easy for you as a therapist or because it's part of your template. If there's a really solid reason and it's because the system requires it, okay, do it, fine, and then change the system. Do some advocacy, change the system. But otherwise, don't just jump into irrelevant assessments because they're there. And I think even as you know, new grads and early year clinicians, it's they feel easier to us. They're very concrete to do those you know assessments where we can score them up. But what we need to be doing, so I try to not just say don't don't do this, don't do that, but I just let it get to what what do we do? Okay, so you're assessing a little human, so just treat them as a human, get to know them as a human. What do they like? What do they love? Get qualitative, learn about them, do unstructured tasks and just get curious about their skills, their interests. When are they performing well? Whatever performing means. There's a word we need to examine. And, you know, where are they thriving and where are their challenges? And, you know, going outside the child, learning about how parents perceive them, how therapists perceive them, how teachers perceive them. The strategies people are already putting in place that help, often they're quite unconscious, so you might have to dig a bit deeper to find out what's supporting them. That's the kind of assessment that truly supports a child because that's where you get a real genuine understanding about who they are and where the gaps are. So I feel that there's a lot of space for much improvement, at least in Australia, and I think it's pretty broad (laughs) in how confident therapists are to do qualitative assessments. I don't know. What's your read on how that goes in the US? I find often that we're not comfortable with it, yet also don't have the time. The time factor where like, I have an hour. I need to move on. I just need something. And I'm someone and I'm guilty. Hand is raised. I have been there. But I love learning so much about what is like a better practice and a better way. Like, I feel like getting that information could take just the same amount of time. It is not the, the norm for us. Like, and it's a practice that we have to practice. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, it exactly. really is, um, you know, we need to be trained. We need to practice. We need to have tools. We need to have some guidelines and guidance in that. And yeah, so that's something I'm very passionate about and I'm working on in the background, as I said. Um, so yeah, I'm really glad we had this discussion. <laughs> yes. And you mentioned about like, you know, coming up with goals and the goal shouldn't be about changing the child, but changing the world around the child. Can you explain, give an example of a goal and maybe like an activity that you might do to address that? Yeah, that's a great idea. So to start with, I think a lot of speech therapists, we are, and I certainly have in the past, been guilty of writing down goals that are about changing the child, but having these secret covert goals about, let's say, parent education, for example. But we don't often write that down. Some do. Some don't. I didn't for years. And then I realized that there was nothing that I was writing in these goal plans or these goal reviews that was about probably 50% of the work I was doing, which was actually helping the pairing understand the strategy, practice the strategy, and learn about autism, and learn how to apply these strategies with their child, all of that. So one thing we need to do is get very conscious about writing out the goals that we're actually working on. And not everything needs to be about changing the child's skills. As I said, I like to think about three main aspects of changing the world around the child. So there's changing people around them. And that includes things like knowledge, perception, values, skills. 
uh, changing schedules and expectations. And that might even be things like how many activities they do after school or how many, th- how many times a week they go to therapy. It could be about uh, school schedules. So whether they need a reduced schedule at school and they can't actually manage the typical long day that most kids do. So yeah, changing expectations is even things like sensory, you know, like the sensory around them. It could be like, you know, things of that nature even. Um, exactly. And so sen- sensory comes into it, well, big time in probably every level, but I see that really in the environment level. And I think traditionally we might have thought occupational therapists deal with that. That's not our thing, but we can't work with neurodivergent kids without understanding their sensory needs. So if that's not something that uh, a listener is aware of or, you know, feeling very across, please go learn and read some more about sensory challenges, sensory preferences. Um, changing the environment around a child is totally within our scope. And that might be things like suggesting to the school teacher that maybe that wall in the classroom should have a little bit less stuff on it because it is so busy and distracting for the child. And while it looks fun, all they can do is fixate on all the colors. I'm speaking from personal experience here rather than actually be able to take in the, the learning that they're expected to. So that's one example. It could be things like sticking with the school setting. It could be things like changing uh, the seating. And, you know, that is such an easy thing we can suggest. If you know that a kid is regularly and moving around, but the teacher's asking them to sit with quiet legs and quiet hands and all of that jazz, we can advocate for the kid. We can suggest and and guide so that there's some support and creativity happening. Some teachers are great at this, but, you know, building in the flexibility for like how kids learn and the ideal space so that when we give them the optimum space and we give them the optimum sensory conditions and all the grown-ups around them understand their needs and the expectations that everyone has of them, um, you know, how much homework they're going to complete each day or how exactly we go about washing their hair, all of those expectations are aligned with their needs then there's a lot less work you need to do in, let's say, inverted commas here, changing the child. So we have to get creative sometimes. I don't, again, this is so variable how much it's in our training to go, um, you know, these are some things you can work on with a child, but it's actually not with the child. It's with everyone else and the whole world around them. You just go a lot further when you take that approach. I love it. I love it that you were always doing it indirectly. And now you're saying, wait, this, let me just put this out there that like, this is what I'm working on. I'm not working on changing the child first. What, like, let's fix the environment around the child so that the child can be successful. And write them down, call it out, educate others. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. Takes a bit of advocacy and creativity in some cases, but it can be done. Love it. Can you give an example of a goal slash activity that you would do with the child directly? Okay, so a really fun one I did a little while ago was with a boy who was about 11 and really, really struggled with literacy. He was dyslexic. He was autistic. He absolutely loved football. Well, still, I'm sure, certainly loves football. So like rugby in Australia, I don't even know. I don't even know the codes of football, but there's one version or the other. And he absolutely lit up from week to week. We would do all kinds of things around the footy. So we would write reports about what had happened on the weekend, like when he went to a footy game, he'd write that out. His teachers started getting on board and being really happy to see his writing in the context of his interests rather than always trying to make sure that he just did the schoolwork that was set out because he was just not engaged and it was such a hard thing for him to write. But once we brought in his interest and his passion, he just, he ran with it. And I learned a lot about footy, but 
it's not my interest, but you know, I'm a grown up and I was a therapist, so I could turn it on. And I actually ended up getting quite invested in that season. And one of the fun things we did was he wrote some predictions, how he thought the season would end. And when the season ended, I actually wasn't working with him directly at the time, but I did promise that I would get in touch and remind, like via his mum, remind them of the predictions he'd made. And he was exactly spot on. Like they were very specific predictions. And so the feedback that I got from the parent was just how amazing it was for him to feel this success in life, to feel that he was knowledgeable and he was an expert and all the writing stuff that happened incidentally, let's say, because of this writing and typing that he did around his interests, it just came quite organically. So that kind of work around, you know, bringing the goal, the thing that we want to teach them, the thing that we know will help them long term, bring that in line with their interests wherever possible. You can do that with anyone of any age. I love it. So amazing. Thank you so much, Adina. Where can everyone learn more about you and everything you have to offer other than signing up for a July 22nd speech retreat at speechretreat.com? Where can everyone learn more about you? <laughs> yes. So I will be talking about affirming uh, approaches to supporting behavior at that event, which is very, very exciting to me. So please do come to speech retreat. I also have a free checklist for your lovely people, and there will be a link in the show notes, I believe. Yes, and that there it is. is called the Neurodiversity Affirming Speech Therapy Practices for SLPs Supporting Autistic Children. It's something I've just, uh, it's, I'm so passionate about it. And I've heard really great feedback from people who found it very useful. So please go and grab that checklist. I also have a podcast exploring neurodiversity and I'm on Instagram quite a lot. I'm play.learn.chat. I don't even think I said my business name at the start. Play Learn Chat is me. You'll find me. If you look in Playland Chat or Adina Levy, you'll find me. <laughs> you are amazing. Thank you so much for sharing everything you know about this topic. And every, you like, really are just a wealth of knowledge. And it's really amazing to hear. And I can't wait to learn more from you in July. I always end my episodes with a joke because jokes are fun and a great way to build rapport. How can you tell that the ocean is friendly? Oh, oh that's a good one. Something about waving. It's got to be something about waving. It waves. You got it. Gonna I, think, I, think, I think you're like my first guess that like, like got it on like some further capacity. So yeah, I just, I know that's funny, but I want to, I want to get this right. <laughs> Thank you so much for this chat. And I just, it's been a delight. So I can't wait to share more with your people. It's been your treat. You are so welcome. And until everyone next week, stay out of trouble. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. It means the world to me that you're tuning in each and every week and getting the jolt of inspiration you need. You can find all of the links and information mentioned in this episode at my website, speechtimefun.com. Don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss any future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you would take a few seconds and leave me an honest review. See you next week with another episode full of fun and inspiration from one SLP to another. Have fun, guys.